Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, there really is no greater civic infrastructure project in this country's history, both in its scope, scale, and its impact, too. A national railway would wind up being the thread across Canada that bound us from east to west. Now, author Stephen Bound is revisiting that history with a modern lens, and he joins me to explain what he's found. As Israel steps up attacks on Gaza, ordering more than a million people to leave the north of the territory, one of Canada's former top soldiers joins me to talk about the challenges that Israel's military could face in Gaza, the issue of civilians caught in the middle, and concerns that Israel doesn't have a plan for what comes after any invasion. And we meet a Montrealer with family in Gaza, as Ottawa says there is some hope that they'll be able to evacuate some Canadians from Gaza on Saturday. But first, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled today that much of the federal legislation on environmental effects of major developments is unconstitutional, striking down what's known as the Impact Assessment Act. We decipher the decision and find out why those who argue resource projects are stifled by too much regulation see the Friday the 13th decision as a lucky one. Friday the 13th may be seen as an unlucky day. It probably didn't feel that way in the Alberta Premier's office today. Here's why. Back in May of 2022, Alberta's top court found that the federal environmental assessment law, known as the Impact Assessment Act, was unconstitutional. Now, that law came into effect in 2019. You may be familiar with it. It essentially is what allows federal regulators to assess the environmental and social impact of sort of resource and infrastructure projects, basically to determine the potential adverse environmental effects of any project. In some quarters, it is unaffectionately known as the No More Pipelines Law. It was challenged in the Supreme Court, and today, the Supreme Court justices delivered their ruling, and in a 5-2 majority finding, they declared it unconstitutional because its language could be used to regulate activities within provincial jurisdiction. Chief Justice Richard Wagner, writing for the majority, said the law is written the way it's written could regulate activities that are provincial business instead of restricting Ottawa to environmental effects that are within its powers to oversee. So Alberta Premier Daniel Smith said the decision is a win for the economy and for provincial rights and that major projects that had stalled out can now move ahead provinces to stop that bleeding, rebuild investor confidence, and attract those jobs back into our economies. She sounds happy, right, for a Friday the 13th? Now, it's not quite as clear-cut as the Premier would have you believe. The High Court ruled that while Ottawa does have the right to consider environmental impacts of major projects, the existing law was interpreting that right too broadly and interfering in what is provincial jurisdiction. The Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Gilboz, says that Ottawa had been careful in how it applied the law, but will rewrite parts of it to satisfy the court. We have tried to ensure that we stayed within federal heads of power for the application of, uh, of the Act. Now, what the Supreme Court seems to suggest is that the Act, as defined, is, a, is, is too broad in, in, in certain respect, and, and we need to tighten it. So we will work to, to do that in the coming months. So the big deal here is that it's often been seen as something that's really gotten in the way of resource development, right? Uh, whereas the federal government has said this is what's needed to cut greenhouse gas uh, emissions and so forth, as well as other environmental impacts. On the other side, there's been this sense that it really has prevented things from being built in this country, prevented projects from going ahead, scared away investors. So what exactly did the Supreme Court decide today and what impact could it really have? Martin Olshinsky is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary and he joins me now. Uh, Martin, thank you. No, you're very welcome. 
this was a complex case, I know. And even this, I mean, there were a lot of there was a lot of speculation about what the justices may decide here. But ultimately, it was a pretty straightforward thing that they were looking at. What did they determine? Yeah, I think that's important. That's a great question, um, because there is a lot of rhetoric and hyperbole uh, around the decision already. And so what they said, basically, is that the federal government, and they've said this 30 years ago, so we'd be surprised if they said otherwise, that the federal government certainly has the jurisdiction to do environmental assessment, but that this legislation, the most recent iteration, and we've had like four versions in the last four decades, that in some parts, it's just too unfocused on those issues that fall squarely in the federal wheelhouse. If you wanted to, and, and I know that the minister, federal minister of environment has said that they're going to work on amendments and introduce them to, to bring it into conformity, probably like probably a page of amendments to simply tighten up some of the language around the decision about what projects go to assessment and which ones don't, and then the kinds of changes that proponents can make before they're subjected to the regime, just to tighten that language up gets you, you know, 90% of the way, I think, in terms of of this project, so for, or sorry, of this law. So, you mm-hmm. know, some of your readers may be familiar with the old Harper regime. This is what we can call this the Trudeau regime. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like the Supreme Court basically said the sweet spots in between. Right. And in this case, because, I mean, what we've been seeing in terms of the rhetoric is, is, is essentially that this was unconstitutional, which I guess in many ways parts of it were. Uh, but really, this is about how broad it was. Right. So what I mean, Alberta's declaring this as a victory. They're the ones who brought this case. Or, I mean, ultimately, it was their reference case that, that, that was brought before the Supreme Court this time around. Uh, but what was the issue with it? Where is it too broad? Yeah, so unfortunately, I think, you know, and and I don't think the premier here is doing anyone any favors announcing sort of to the world that the federal government has no jurisdiction to do environmental assessment in the province anymore. That's definitely not what the case says. It says very clearly that, for instance, where there are impacts to fish and fish habitat, where there are impacts to indigenous peoples uh, and their lands and interests, where there are impacts to migratory birds, that all of these are valid bases for doing impact assessment at the federal level. Some of these considerations were mixed with non-federal considerations, considerations that we say might fall more properly within the provincial wheelhouse, that that in a sense, because they didn't give primacy to those federal effects, took the act offside. And so really what the federal government really just has to do is just refocus the act, trim some of the new stuff off this. For instance, the Supreme Court said, when you're looking at a mine and its impacts on fish and fish habitat, you should focus on the impacts of fish and fish habitat, not whether or not the mine is itself sustainable or not. So, so not saying at all, you can't do the assessment, but just saying, focus on those areas that are squarely in your wheelhouse, things like fish and fish habitat, things like navigation shipping, things like indigenous peoples and their lands, things like migratory birds. So, and, and, and make sure that it's, there's a certain level of impact here that, that justifies your involvement, right? But, you know, that doesn't really, you know, one of the ways that my colleague describes this is, you know, in a sense, the judgment reflects the way that, that the federal regime has always worked. But the language was looser than that. And so we just need to bring the language to meet actual practice. Because there was certainly a lot of uh, anger. And in Alberta, when the, when the court there ruled on this, there was certainly this idea that that those unsaid areas, the moment that the federal government wandered out of those things that you've mentioned, which have long been recognized as federal jurisdiction, that the, the backs really got up over sort of how broadly this could be interpreted before today. Yeah, for sure. You know, and then there are a few other like elements. I think one of the ones obviously is the federal government's ability to consider the transboundary effects of projects. And here the, the federal government was relying kind of on this kind of like loose notion that, look, you know, of course, we can look at transboundary impacts. Provinces can't look at 
they have no authority over impacts beyond their borders. So it would make sense for us to look at those. And and here they got a bit of a clap back from the Supreme Court. The Chief Justice said, look, you were just in here two years ago on the carbon price reference. And I told you, like, we didn't give you a broad authority over GHGs. We said there you could, you prove that minimum national pricing standards was a matter of national concern. And that's kind of like the magic words for making that federal jurisdiction. So similarly here, they didn't say that the federal government can't look at the climate impacts of projects, but that it wasn't enough that, that, they, that they want to do that. They need to bring it forward as, a, as what we call a matter of national concern. And they have to effectively prove it to the Supreme Court that this is something that they should, that they need to have jurisdiction over for the peace, order and good government of Canada. That's kind of like the magic word. So so there are some certainly I think and I think that's the one where, you know, rightfully the province of Alberta is uh, running a victory lap there. The Supreme Court didn't give them an easy entry here into regulating the emissions from individual projects. If they want to do that, they're going to have to do some more work. They're going to have to do some more. You know, essentially, they have to substantiate that regulating the, the GHG emissions of specific projects is something that the federal government needs to do to be able to deal with this problem. Right. I mean, obviously, all, almost every other province intervened on on Alberta's side here. So there was sort of a broad concern. Alberta has been the focal point uh, and certainly provinces that ally with Alberta on some of these things, such as Saskatchewan, are, are celebrating today. But other provinces, I mean, you know, there are many other provinces got involved in this as well. I guess there was this idea that the way the legislation was written was simply too broad and open for inter- and too open for interpretation, even in provinces that mightn't have the same concerns over resource projects. I mean, look, I mean, the, you know, if I can be like practical or pragmatic about it, I mean, of course, every province would love to not have to deal with the federal government and, and not to have their industries uh, deal with the federal government for any permitting. Provinces are much more dependent on resource revenue. Right. And so they would like to have, you know, in a sense, unfettered decision making around resource management because they think that that will attract investment. Right. But of course, our Constitution has been drafted in such a way as recognizing that there are going to be some matters that require a kind of a national uniform treatment, right? And I, we don't want to, I, I wouldn't be able to even give it justice, but so things like water quality, you know, like things like fish and fisheries, fish habitat, things like navigation shipping, impacts on Indigenous peoples, you know, we we made the decision 150 years ago to assign those to the federal parliament. So so parliament will always have a role. And, and, and again, the Supreme Court recognized that here, but also the provinces will always want to minimize that role, you know, and, and, and we can dress some of that up as valid, you know, jurisdictional and constitutional concerns. But a lot of it is actually just frankly pragmatic, right, where they just they would like to be uh, masters in their own home. And, and, and that then and we can I can appreciate that. But at the same time, I think we want to be careful not to take that too far, because we know that provinces have in the past and, and will again, sort of like race to the bottom in a sense, in terms of their environmental standards and, and regulatory regimes. Martin, when you look at what happens now, I mean, there's a whole system that's been put in place for these assessments. What happens to them in the meantime? I guess the government has, the federal government has a period of time to try to tighten up these rules and abide by the ruling. But what happens to all the things that are in the pipeline already, so to speak? No pun intended. Yeah, no, that's good. And this is actually really important. So, you know, usually, you know, and this is about this idea that this was a reference decision. This wasn't a, there was no project that was that triggered this dispute. It was an opinion that the Alberta government sought from the Alberta Court of Appeal, and that was a, appealed to the Supreme Court. And so, for instance, normally when a law is struck down, there'll be a, you know, the court will say something like, we'll suspend our declaration for six months to give the government a chance to get its house in order, you know, to be able to deal with the knock-on effects. And we've seen that in the context of, you know, assisted dying and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that here because technically this is an opinion. 
it isn't actually it, so the law hasn't been struck down it's been mm-hmm. declared unconstitutional so what can happen is a proponent could on monday if they're annoyed and they don't like this regime they could for instance you know because I, as of right now it's still the law of the land it hasn't been struck down the impact assessment and this is really important because again the premier smith has been saying opposite this law still applies in alberta as it is now what could happen is a proponent could challenge it and and of course then what the what we'd expect the federal government to do is to say look court can you just like cool it we are working on this right now so we we would expect the you know the federal government's going to have to deal with this issue you know within the next few months for sure in other contexts they're given a year i don't think they're going to want to wait that long they're going to want to i think fix this faster than that but as of right now anyways actually the whole regime still applies it's just that an individual proponent can invoke this decision in a sense in its own litigation to actually have the law declared invalid but like i said i think in that case what would happen very quickly is the feds would step in and say hey can we just like we're working on it give us a second and so then when the feds come and introduce legislation it's going to be a reset right like right. And, and so then it'll become a question like i mean but so everything stays in place right like i mean there are things that this judgment affects for sure but really again it's really easy to overstate the effect of this judgment and again I, i've had people who have been in this space for a long time say like this is how it's always been and they're just asking us to tighten the language around that so for the most part like th- there definitely are some issues like i said around climate change but but for the most part so, for instance, to your point, like I don't, I don't expect any massive changes in the machinery. The projects that are in the queue are in the queue. People are going to sort of maybe wait for a bit to see like how this shakes out. But I think you know what we expect, and, and I'm certain that the premier here won't be happy. But you know what we expect is that probably within a, a few months, the regime will have been adjusted, changes have been made to bring it into compliance with the Supreme Court's ruling, and then just carry on. Right. And, and I suppose that that too could be challenged since these always seem to be to be challenged. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, so you can almost, you know, again, it's very clear, again, just based on, on the on premier's hyperbole, like they're not going to be happy with any kind of federal EA regime, I don't think, unless it's simply restricted to those like classic interprovincial works, right? So pipelines, railways and transmission lines. Mm-hmm. But the, the Supreme Court didn't say that at all. It said very clearly that you have the ability to do impact assessment where there are impacts on fisheries, where there are, you know, again, those things that are really The things listed. that you so, mentioned, yeah. You know, we might see the those provinces using these new sovereignty act type pieces of legislation where they're going to say, well, it doesn't matter. It's not good enough for us. And so therefore we declare the sovereignty act. And then those sovereignty acts will have to go to court and they will be, you know, they'll be struck down because they're clearly not constitutional. And, and then we'll be back to the status quo. And, and so now, on and, and, and so on and so on. Exactly. And so right. on. Yeah. yeah. It's good yeah. for lawyers, I'm sure. It's good for lawyers. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I'm know. sure it is good for some lawyers. But, I, you know, I, I do think that, you know, unfortunately, things have gotten quite off the rails, I think, in this in this country in terms of like the fever pitch around some of these policy disagreements. And, and ultimately, uh, you, you can't help but think that it's Canadians who are going to suffer as a consequence. And that right. includes our investor investor confidence and, and economic development. And those are decisions that are being made by people at a higher level than myself. Right. Well, Justice Wagner mentioned that today in his, in his ruling. He said, you know, that, that, that when it comes to respect to powers over environment, uh, that they should be in the spirit of cooperative federalism, he put it. It's a word we haven't heard much of recently. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a landmark of their jurisprudence. And I mean, you know, so we, we've heard them try to say that over and over again. I, you know, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting statement. You certainly got that sense. I, I'm not super optimistic that's going to work out, but, but I mean, we can all hope for sure. Well, Martin, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. We've been also talking about this Supreme Court decision today that struck down most of uh, the federal government's environmental assessment rules. Uh, Jason Edmonton says, when I hear Trudeau and his government momentum on wanting so heavily 
to have Bill C-69 was what used to be called um, the Impact Assessment Act. It sounds like a group of people that are against prosperity of Canada in so many economics now and in the future, whether it was the missed LNG opportunity with the PM of Japan, Chancellor of Germany, Europe Energy Security, as well as globally. I feel like Trudeau and Gilbo, uh, the Environment Minister, need to just come up with their foolish plan, come up with their foolish plan so people can understand why it's just the clean energy only campaign when it comes to them. I mean, I, I, one of those things that was pointed out to me today as I was speaking to different people about this is, of course, you know, the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think the Liberal government has felt like this was good intentions, um, but it's had what feels like a disproportionate impact, obviously, on places like Alberta. Getting stuff done, right? That's what the issue is, getting stuff done. Uh, our next guest will let you know, because I've talked to her in the past, that you know the average time it takes to get a mine built in this country is like 18 years. And a, a, a lifetime, a, a childhood for many people in this country, and that's simply too long. As I was mentioning, Friday the 13th was a lucky day for those who opposed uh, this environmental assessment law that was brought in in 2019 allowing the federal federal regulators really to assess the environmental and social impacts of various resource and infrastructure projects. And again, unaffectionately dubbed by Jason Kenney as the No More Pipelines Law. Well, today the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that much of the federal legislation is unconstitutional. Five of the court's seven justices found that the Impact Assessment Act, as written, could infringe on provincial powers. Federal Conservative leader Pierre Polyev praised the ruling, and of course he attacked the Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau, with the help of the NDP has violated the constitutional rights of Canadians to develop their own natural resources. He has blocked natural gas liquefaction facilities. He has blocked lithium, cobalt, and other mines. Of course, I mean, that, that, that's fair. They didn't get many built under the Conservatives either, by the way, if you think back. But it's a fair assessment. It's been eight years, right? And we've been fighting over this. Uh, again, more complicated. It didn't strike down everything. It states that Ottawa can still step in on projects that are, in fact, under federal jurisdiction. Uh, the Federal Natural Resources Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, says Ottawa has been careful in applying the law and doesn't expect the ruling to change how it operates. In the way in which we implemented the Act, it was always tethered to areas of federal jurisdiction. So... I, I don't think that the court's direction is inconsistent with the way in which we've actually been implementing the act in any event, but certainly that will be top of mind in the way in which we think about this, the assessment of projects that are currently in the process. Right. Still, it is being seen as a victory for those who've seen the regulatory process as being a big hindrance to investment in this country and completion of a wide range of resource projects. And that includes my next guest, Heather exner Pirro, is Director of Energy, Natural Resources and Environment at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. And uh, she joins me now. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, I mean, this decision was a much anticipated one, wasn't it? Well, I mean, it was anticip very anticipated, but the result was a surprise. Um, when when it, you know when we heard it was going to be released on October 13th, of course, around Calgary, it's a big joke that it's a Friday 13th nightmare that we we're all going to wait for. But, uh, you know, instead, we're all popping champagne bottles. So very good idea if you're in the energy resort or resource industry or in the Alberta government. Tell me why, because, I mean, within, again, you know, like all Supreme Court uh, opinions in this case, this one was quite nuanced. I mean, it did rule that parts of it were constitutional, the parts that would be familiar to most of us around things that have always been federal jurisdiction, that it was just a little too broad. But why did you think this was the right decision uh, on on the part of a majority of the justices, five to two? Well, I mean, it was, it's almost blatantly un, unconstitutional, it, almost blatantly, you know, the federal government reaching very far into the provincial lane. And here I'll, I'll add that so was the Harper government era environmental impacts of that, see 2012. 
Mm-hmm. That was really the start of the slippery slope into this federal overreach. Uh, but it got worse under the current liberals. And the practical effect of that was that we had two often competing processes. Uh, so not a lot of value adds, you know, from a proponent or public interest perspective, but a lot more duplication, a lot more redundancy, a lot more bureaucracy. Uh, and it's just really slowed down the project pipeline. Yeah, tell me a bit, a bit about the impact, because you're, you're right. It seems like successive federal governments have managed to get this wrong. And it's probably because it's it's relatively complicated when you're talking about sort of greenhouse gas emissions and what's federal and what's provincial. Um, but what has the impact of this latest, we'll call it the Trudeau regime, one been hmm. on the industry itself? It, you know, it's a hard thing. You know, when you talk about impact assessment legislation, most people's eyes glazed over. Indeed. So it's hard to make this into something, you know, sexy or of interest or have a hashtag or a TikTok. But by any any rational estimate, we've lost over $100 billion of investments because of it. Uh, and, and the term I've heard, a very Canadian thing, is that, you know, we're seeing quiet quitting. That you don't hear about the projects don't happen. But investors, you know, just have given up on Canada. Proponents have given up. And you can start to see this in the data, um, you know, the, the, the less money, the fewer projects uh, are relative to other places like Australia. Great article in the Globe and Mail today about how Australia is kind of running circles around us. So all these all these small and quiet ways. Now you're starting to see the impacts in our economy, our productivity, uh, our foreign direct investment. It just made it so painful. It made us a, a jurisdiction, you know, of political risk to do resource development in. Right. I, I guess part of that, too, was just the uncertainty, the the arbitrary, the arbitrariness of it, uh, because it gave powers to the to the federal government that could be used or not used, depending on the project, so to speak. Yeah, and that would be a criticism. And, and again, there was some of this in the in the Harper legislation, but it got worse under IAA of the political, um, you know, recognizing this politically, really, so that the IAA was so written so broadly that anything that has to do with you know, with water or indigenous peoples or greenhouse gas emissions, like no threshold, any amount of greenhouse gas emissions could be considered against the public interest. So really anything could be considered considered a federal project. And guess what? The federal government allowed itself to veto through the Minister of Environment and Climate Change any project that was considered a federal designation for the Fed. So from a, and just imagine from an investor's perspective in New York, trying to go get money if you're a proponent in Canada and saying, you know, yeah, Stephen Guibault can veto this at any minute or on any day for, you know, any any number of reasons and has before, you know, uh, but this time, you know, you know, give me your billion dollars. Um, so it just made it very difficult to attract uh, investment to this country. Right. And you mentioned that it's not new either. I mean, the Supreme Court struck down the Harper uh, era one as well. This seems to be something that governments have, federal governments uh, have a hard time figuring out. And and certainly, I mean, there are provinces, Alberta specifically, that have been felt like they've borne the brunt of this. Um, but uh, every other province stepped in as well as interveners on Alberta's side in this one. So clearly there's this doesn't just apply to Alberta. Yeah, I think BC changed their opinion in the end, and they have a substitution agreement. But but it started out with 10 provinces against, and I think it was eight at the end. But uh, the broader point that you're trying to get to, Ben, is that we are being very poorly served by the polarized regulatory environment we have in Canada. And it's been bad for a decade. And we are, and, and, you know, whatever side of the political spectrum on, you're on, I think today in 2023, we all agree that we need to build better and faster, whether you want it for the energy transition, whether you want it for, you know, energy security for our allies, whether you just want a better economy for the country. The regulatory process we have is dysfunctional. 
uh, and it needs to be improved. And and we need the provinces and the feds to to figure it out. Uh, you know, it's well overdue for them to start figuring out and doing something that works. You mentioned uh, in an op-ed that I gather will be published that I've seen already, so I get to count myself amongst the lucky <laughs> ones. Um, but you know, a lot there were there was disappointment today, clearly from 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 groups that really want to see the federal government uh, sort of coming down hard, who don't think that provinces such as Alberta are going to do the right thing, quote unquote, whatever that whatever you think that may mean, do the right thing when it comes to resource extraction and the environmental assessment of these projects. Yeah, and and so that's you know the supporters of this, so the people that are disappointed today saw that the federal government is a bulwark against, you know, kind of the worst, you know, extractive, um, you know, you know, extractive intentions, you know, that people who had disregard for the environment, uh, disregard for climate change, and saw this as protecting from some of that. And, and, you know, this is certainly a valid reaction, I'm sure I feel the same. But from my perspective, uh, the, the check on the provinces shouldn't have been the federal government, the check is the courts. Uh, and so there are still legal protections, especially with regards to Indigenous rights. Um, having the federal government, and there's and there's some Indigenous groups that were very against uh, the IAAs as written too, mm-hmm. because it is federal overreach on them too. And so some Indigenous groups, you know, intervened, were interveners, didn't want that federal overreach, wanted for themselves to decide if projects were in their own interest, in the public interest for them, not the federal government. And, and so, so the point is, when the federal government if or if any if any provincial government did violate indigenous rights or really you know didn't do their due diligence on, on environmental protection didn't protect the public interest and environmental protection there's still the courts this isn't we aren't entering a vacuum we aren't ending some kind of environmental catastrophe the provinces have competence the provinces have the same voters at the end of the day you know in aggregate as the federal government people still want clean water clean air uh, but but there's a sense that the province is having that one process um, and having having it reflect more, you know, the public interest for each different province with their different sets of interests. Heather, you've seen this as an opportunity because it feels like we've been getting this wrong for a long time. Uh, even the justices were calling for sort of collaborative federalism, which was, I thought, nice, <laughs> a nice idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somehow there must be a middle ground here because it feels like watching everyone's reaction today was just a bit, you know, it was a bit <laughs> You're like, well, the, the Supreme Court would like to say, stop bringing this to us, you know, figure it out and do it right. Yeah, you know, I I can see from the perspective, you know, the federal liberals really believe that they were doing something special and different, I think, you know, on emissions reduction plans and, and policies. So I appreciate the good intentions of what they're going of what they're trying to do. But in practice, what it was is was, you know, not respecting provincial jurisdiction and adding a a a, a, a parallel process. And and there's no value adding. Like obviously, the more the more efficient solution to regulatory process in Canada is to have better provincial processes, right. not to have a, a bad prov- a bad provincial one and then you know a different federal one. Um, so th- I mean, this costs time and money and, and confusion and risk, and it's it's very not mu- very much not the ideal situation to have two parallel processes. So if Canadians are concerned as voters, you know, that that the environment is getting short shrift, that Indigenous rights are getting short shrift, the solution, you know, is is to pressure provinces to have um, stronger environmental regimes. But in some provinces, there's obviously not that concern, you know, that people think that, you know, it'd be much better if, if, you know, their interests would be better served by the provincial government than by the federal government. Um, so it's you know the, the situation we have here is is dysfunctional in my opinion, and here we have an opening to do something different. 
Right. And, and I guess what, what you've seen in the, the the end result of this is that investors, when they see the dysfunction, regardless of who's to blame for it, turn away, they walk away. Right. It's just not it's not a it's not an environment conducive to dropping a lot of money, not knowing what's going to happen in the long run. It's and, and I, you know, it's the timelines. And I'll give this example. You know, uh, Minister Wilkinson has said a few times that it can't take 12 to 15 years to build a mine in Canada. It takes 17.9 years on average. That's the actual, actual, you know, 12 to 15 years would be a dream right now. And I want people to consider in a, you know, in a low interest environment where money was basically free, you know, um, okay, maybe we could slide by on that. But in a high interest environment, when the cost of capital is so high, when you're adding years to a process because of, of, you know, you need different studies for different levels of government and they have different requirements and they have different questions, they have different consultative, uh, you know, scope. I mean, I mean, this adds, this is a lot of money just wasted, just wasted uh, and, and not being able to get these projects done. So, so yeah, there's, there's ample room for efficiency. And I, th- and I think, you know, I have to say this, the Liberals already said in budget 2023 that they were going to improve the process Everyone already agrees that the process is not right, that it needs to be fixed. And so for me, this opinion just, you know, gives some guideposts of what absolutely needs to be fixed and gives a better scope to a good policy. Like I've said before, we can't just go from a bad unconstitutional policy to a bad constitutional policy. Let's also move towards a good policy. Yeah, that would be that would be it would be a change. It would be nice because you make it sound, of course, it's not red tape. It's like a red great wall uh, that 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 are often faced. What now? What about? I mean, I was I've asked this question earlier. I guess a lot of uh, there's a lot of projects that are already in the assessment phase. I gather that holds for now. Uh, is this going to be have a chilling effect in the short term while the federal government tries to figure out how to react to this and change the wording of that legislation? I don't think so because the worst case scenario is that things were like they were yesterday. And right. that was already the scenario. So the best case scenario is that, yeah, for a lot of projects, the entire impact assessment, uh, you know, portion is just removed, uh, that they just have to deal with their provincial regulator. And there may be some aspects, you know, um, you know, with fisheries, with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, where you still have some permits that you have to get. And in most mines, there will be some DFO permits that you have to get. Imports, obviously, things like that. So it's not removing everything federal uh, and it's not removing all environmental oversight. It's just removing this additional layer on things that the provinces already have the competency and the jurisdiction to perform. Yeah, and I guess I guess now we're going to wait to see what the federal government comes up with because they have a period of time. I mean, actually, it's an opinion, so it doesn't actually change much because it wasn't a law that was struck down. It was an opinion given. But I guess at this point in time, and the federal government have already said this, they're going to try and sit down and iron out this language, but I can't imagine that any of the provinces are going to be happy with what they come up with. It's sort of the scope of it that they're that they're upset with. Here's what I think. I mean, the polls are indicating that we'll probably have a different federal government in the next election. Um, you know, that's just based on what the polls are saying. So so for me, what this does, you know, do I think that the liberals will go very far? They're over, I think they'll probably do the bare minimum because they think they have good legislation. They still support it. They'll do the bare minimum to make it constitutional. But I think this gives political opening for the conservatives to do something different because it's not the conservatives, you know, disregarding the environment and going crazy and Pierre Polyev, it's the conservatives respecting the Supreme Court of Canada's decision. And so I, so I think this makes the path for reforming IAA under the next government more politically you know, smooth. Right. And and also presents a challenge to them, right? To say, well, you know, what are you, what are you going to do with it? And how are you going to get this right? 
I think I think what the federal conservatives are thinking is consistent with what you know with what Alberta uh, was thinking as as the applicant in this. So um, there you go. So I, I yeah. I, Friday, Friday the thirteenth, not as scary as thought <laughs> as previously thought. <laughs> One project, one assessment, you know, for the love of God, why is that, why is that a difficult principle to wrap people's minds around? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a simple thing. Heather, thank you so much as always. Thanks for having me. Let's head to the Middle East now. And it has been again, another fast moving day in um, Gaza. More than a million people in Northern Gaza have been ordered to evacuate to the South as the latest Israel-Hamas war entered its seventh day now. It's been a week. Uh, it'll be a week early tomorrow morning in Israel. Uh, as Israel appears to be preparing a ground offensive, Hamas, meanwhile, told their residents to stay put. Um, there is panic. Obviously, There's it's very tightly packed in Gaza. There are 2.1 million people there. So you can imagine if you want to move half of them, uh, that is one, where do they go, right? International aid groups have been warning of a worsening humanitarian crisis there as well after Israel prevented entry of supplies from Egypt into Gaza as well. Um, There have been 3,200 people killed already on both sides since this all began on October the 7th with that horrific attack by Hamas on uh, on civilians in Israel. More than 1,300 Israeli civilians or civilians there, including three Canadians, were killed. Many more injured. There are still hostages, it's believed, um, including Canadians potentially uh, being held in Gaza as all this is unfolding. Uh, The UN said the Israel order had provided only 24 hours for the complete evacuation of those one point one million people. Uh, And the same order also applied to UN officials and thousands of people sheltering in UN schools, shelters and clinics. Uh, Here is Antonio Guterres, the uh, UN Secretary General. Moving more than one million people across a densely populated war zone to a place with no food, water or accommodation when the entire territory is under siege is extremely dangerous and in some cases simply not possible. There's, of course, concern for those many hostages still believed to be in Gaza. President Joe Biden says the U.S. is working around the clock to free Americans still unaccounted for after the Hamas incursion into Israel. Biden says he has met virtually with the loved ones of those who remain missing. I spoke with the family members of all those Americans who are still unaccounted for on a Zoom call for about an hour and a 10, 15 minutes. They're, they're going through agony, not knowing what the status of their sons, daughters, husbands, wives, children are. You know, it's gut-wrenching. I assured them my personal commitment to do everything possible, everything possible to return every missing American to their families. And tonight, Bloomberg is reporting that the Biden administration fears that Israel doesn't have a plan for what comes after the invasion of Gaza. We thought we'd put that question to retired Major General Dennis Thompson. He served for 39 years in the Canadian Army, deploying on multiple operations at home and abroad in Cyprus, Germany, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and in Egypt, including command of the multinational force and observers in Egypt's Sinai region from 2014 to 2017. So recently, uh, this is an issue he knows well. He is now a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and he joins me now. Now, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. Just your reaction to the events of the past week. It seems so much has happened since uh, since Saturday morning uh, of last week. But just with your experience, your reaction to all that we've seen, the Hamas attack and then the Israeli response. I am just as astounded as, astounded as everyone else is, uh, I have to say, having been in a region for some time and having relatively good relations with the Israeli Defense Force I I am surprised that they were surprised. Uh, When you consider 
the the Gaza Strip and what surrounds it. And and just uh, so your listeners know, it's it only has three entry points. In the north, it's called Arras, and then down south there are two entry points at Sharm Kalom and uh, the the Rafa crossing. And the whole thing is surrounded. The the whole strip is surrounded by a fence. But this isn't your typical sort of chain link fence. It's a fence made out of a lattice of rebar, three quarter inch steel. So you can't get through that with with a pair of wire cutters. You actually need a bulldozer, which is what they did, or uh, or a welding torch to literally cut open a hole. Uh, the fact that they could do that unobserved, or maybe they maybe they had already taken out the cameras. We don't know all the details yet, and and they'll certainly come out because the Israelis will conduct a full investigation. That they were able to do that and send fifteen hundred, at least fifteen hundred fighters into the area surrounding the Gaza Strip, and then cause this murderous rampage, which is completely unprecedented in Israel's history, astounded me. I, I was uh, totally taken aback by what had happened. Now, we're in a phase where, obviously, Israel has mobilized, and, and they are not going to take this lying down. And I've heard people describe it as such, as Israel's 9-11. So in this particular circumstances, the U.S. had a couple of months where they went after al-Qaeda inside of Afghanistan and they toppled the Taliban. And pretty much they had a free hand for the first couple of months. And people were willing, if you will, to look the other way. And I think there's certainly the spirit of, ve- of vengeance alive and well in Israel, which is understandable. Uh, but I'm hoping that they take a more measured approach because they'll end up playing right into the hands of Hamas and their propagandists. And you've mentioned this, that uh, first of all, the attack itself was reminiscent of an ISIS attack and the brutality of it, and and perhaps also in the aims of it, the publicity, the luring, you know, the the sort of mindlessness to some extent of it, there to provoke this kind of reaction. In other words, is Israel in the danger danger of walking into a trap here? Absolutely. And I think that Hamas didn't believe they were going to have as much success, if you can call it that, success as they as they did, or at least that the amplitude of the attack would have been answered much quicker by Israel than it was in the actual case. The conflict it has a risk of escalating, uh, spiraling out of control of Israel going inside of the Gaza Strip and fighting in a, uh, in a very urbanized setting. They've already ordered that Gaza City be emptied. That's 1.1 million people, at least almost half the population, telling them to move south towards Rafah in order to permit them to conduct their operation to destroy Hamas infrastructure. Uh, that's clearly not going to happen. It's a, it's a physical impossibility. There are many dark days ahead of us here. What is the, the what are the challenges? Because I think when one looks at the air campaign, the bombardment, and so on, and just the you know the the, the difference in in sheer force between what the Israelis can put at uh, Gaza and what Hamas has to defend itself, it feels like it's an unfair fight. But we thought the same thing about Iraq and about Afghanistan. Uh, there are a lot of complexities that start once the initial uh, the initial attack is over. Right. Well, one of the greatest levelers is the the fact they're going to be fighting in what the military refers to as complex terrain. So, mm-hmm. and, and this is Hamas's backyard. Now, it's true that the Israeli defense forces will have complete air supremacy, and they will be able to target darn near anything they wish. And the other thing is, uh, because I was there in 2014, and I recall the last time Israel went in, their incursions weren't that deep. Uh, th- they went in just to destroy the tunnels, and they, they did in about 30 of the uh, tunnels that, that Hamas had dug from inside the Gaza Strip to out inside of Israel. Uh, and sure, certainly they're going to go after that subterranean infrastructure, but this time they're talking about penetrating even deeper. 
The last time this happened, there were 67 Israeli soldiers killed in action and 2,200 uh, Gazans that lost their lives. The, the numbers that were Hamas and the numbers that were civilians, uh, I don't know, but there was plenty of collateral damage. So if they go deep into Gaza, they are going to suffer casualties, even though they have superior technology. And since 2014 to the present day, the entrance, if you will, into the military realm of unmanned aerial vehicles, these little quadcopters, will enormously help both sides. So it'll be a tough fight. And I think the fear is that with every piece of collateral damage, in other words, with every civilian killed, Hamas's case will become stronger and stronger and Israel's weaker and weaker. So they're going to have to find a measured approach. All of this, knowing full well that there are somewhere in the vicinity of 150 hostages inside the Gaza Strip. Right. And and the complexities of that are hard to hard to overstate because we don't know where they are. And as you've mentioned, there's a whole underground infrastructure here that you don't see in those images that we so often see of Gaza. Right. And, and so imagine, if you will, like, if, if there are miles and miles of tunnels underneath uh, underneath the Gaza Strip. This is where they hide their weapons and this is where they their command posts are, et cetera. And you cannot get at those unless you get into the tunnel system and tr- and root them out. And you can do that in a number of ways, but it really does take a human being, and there'll be there'll be even more casualties in that sort of uh, subterranean combat. With respect to the the hostages, of course, they're going going to be dispersed all across the Gaza Strip. I think the number I heard was fourteen Americans, and there's some thinking that there are at least one, if not more, Canadians and other nationalities. And so they will want to have a hand in whatever uh, hostage rescue planning goes on inside of Israel. And this is tremendously complex. It's been uh, it's not something that occurs clearly on, on a very frequent basis. Looking at this broadly, um, you know, there there are enemies or many, at least on Israel's borders. Are there fears here that this will expand? You've already mentioned Iran's attachment to Hamas. Of course, they have Hezbollah in Lebanon. Feels like it could quite easily devolve into something much more serious regionally very quickly. Indeed. In fact, uh, Hezbollah is an order of magnitude more difficult in terms of a problem set for Israel than than is Hamas. They are well supplied by Iran. They have well over 100,000 rockets, and some of those are precision-guided munitions, not that different from the munitions that Iran has been giving to Russia to use inside of Ukraine. There is a real fear, uh, and a valid fear, that if Hezbollah enters the war, that Israel could possibly be overwhelmed. The, 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 the issue here is, uh, although Iran and Hezbollah and others are cheerleading at the moment on the on the sidelines. It doesn't appear as if there was any sort of uh, overarching coordination between the two elements, between Hamas and Hezbollah. Otherwise, they would have attacked at the same time and truly overwhelmed Israel. Now that everybody's alerted and sitting up, sitting up straight in their seats, so to speak, uh, I don't know that Hezbollah can pull one over on Israel, but they can certainly inflict a lot of damage from the the southern part of Lebanon into the northern part of Israel. And then, of course, there's Syria, who have been saber-rattling as well, but they're not as serious a threat as Hezbollah is and, uh, and indirectly Iran. When you look at the broader picture, of course, the war in Ukraine continues. Uh, a lot of attention in the West has been paid to that. And now we have a new conflict zone uh, in Israel and Gaza as well. 
uh, it feels like we're entering a time of pretty serious conflict. And one wonders when you look at sort of the countries like the U.S. and Canada and so on and Europe, where this goes, because uh, as, as you well know, populations in those countries have do have a limited appetite for 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 these things over time, politically, especially. That's true. But I, I think it bears stating that the United States and the West in general can walk and chew gum. So I, I don't, I'm not concerned that one will be a distraction for the other. I think there'll still be support for the war in Ukraine. And there clearly is because there have been some uh, there was a, a recent NATO summit to pledge even more support to the Ukrainians. And I think Israel, for the most part, will be able to handle the problem in its region. It's worth noting, of course, that the U.S. sent a carrier battle group into the eastern Mediterranean. And some people might be asking why they're there. They could be acting as a deterrent to Hezbollah, as with one example. But they certainly come well equipped with the whole suite of surface air missiles that not only could defend the ships, which clearly is their their uh, primary purpose, but could also help shore up the uh, air defense envelope that's over top of Israel. So, uh, but again, uh, I don't think that any of this is going to overwhelm the security forces that exist in the West. And that includes, by the way, the, the possibility that something sparks off in the Indo-Pacific with respect to China and Taiwan. I mean, you've you've served, you've seen so much conflict over the years, whether it be, you know, Bosnia, Afghanistan, the Sinai. What's your sense of where this one goes now? Because it feels different, but I'm not sure it necessarily will be different in the long run. Right. So that speaks directly to what the end games are. Hamas's end game, which is hard to not that hard to decipher, but clearly they were very, very much concerned about the normalization of relationships between Arab states and Israel, including states like Morocco, et cetera. And and of course, the the ongoing negotiations that were occurring between Israel and Saudi Arabia, the principal uh, the principal state in the region. That might be, or that could be, one of the aims of Hamas is to derail that process by getting Israel to overreact. The problem for Israel is, what is the end game? So it's tough to figure out what the end state is for Israel, and it certainly can't be what some of their politicians are currently espousing, which are clearly war crimes. In other words, just level the whole thing and have them all live in tents. That's not an option. There's got to be humanitarian corridors opened up eventually. There are uh, other foreign nationals who are in there, not even hostages, but people that actually work there that probably need to get out, including Canadians. There's got to be some some hard-headed thinking inside of Israel to make sure that they don't overstep and make their 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 condition worse. Are you seeing it yet? No, I, I, what I'm seeing at the moment is... Uh, and that's understandable, is this visceral this visceral desire for revenge after an absolutely horrendous, murderous rampage by these uh, by these Hamas militants killing innocent civilians. And like I said before, I'm not sure that they thought that they were going to that, that, that the results would have been so spectacular. Uh, but it's exactly that that's going to potentially push Israel to overreach. Major General Thompson, as always, thank you. My pleasure, Ben. Take care.
in the last uh, half hour, we were speaking with retired Major General Dennis Thompson about some of the challenges and some of the situations with both hostages, civilians, and so on in Gaza as uh, people have been, there's been an evacuation order, obviously, issued by the Israeli military, uh, ordering people to move from northern Gaza towards the south. That's about half the population of 2.1 million having to move. And of course, there are all kinds of concerns about where do they go? Uh, you know, there, there's no way out. And of course, this is as a blockade continues, where Israeli forces are expected to launch some sort of grand assault on Gaza in the near future. Uh, already a thousand people. Again, there's a, you know, there's, I think the death toll is now up around 2,300 or more, uh, including, or 3,000 rather, including those who were killed on Saturday in Israel and civilians killed in Gaza since. Now, there's been a lot of concern, obviously, for those with family in Gaza and very little way to act for them to get out. Uh, the Canadian government, of course, has started those evacuation flights from Tel Aviv. Uh, but today, a glimmer of hope, perhaps. Uh, Canadian government officials say they believe there may be an opportunity for people to leave Gaza tomorrow. Global Affairs Head of Consular Services Julie Sunday said today there are about 70 Canadians stuck there. Uh, Israel's military has told more than 1 million people to evacuate, as I mentioned. Uh, Sunday says Canada's working with allies to try and get people across the Egyptian border during a five-hour window on Saturday. We learned this morning that there may be an opportunity for individuals to leave through the Rafah gate into Egypt tomorrow. We are also facing increasing challenges of communicating with Canadians in the Gaza Strip, given that electricity is down and telecoms are affected. Right. And that goes uh, even more so for those with family there. A very, very tense and scary time for those with family inside Gaza, including uh, Daria Shath, who joins me now from Montreal. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me with you tonight. Thank you. I appreciate that. Tell me a bit about just the, the situation right now. Uh, who's there of yours? Have you been able to speak to anyone? I gather it's just impossible to get a hold of anyone right now in Gaza. Honestly, uh, Ben, I, it's very hard to get in contact with anyone in my family. Uh, some of them I lost contact with them three days, some of them four days, and some of them I just received a message telling me, Dahlia, uh, the house is being bombed, and we are, we are in a different uh, area um, in Rafah or in Khan Yunus. And uh, some, one of my cousins just today told me that he opened a Facebook account to his daughter, who's 12 years old, and telling me in case that he dies, that if wow. anything happens, that she can have always a contact with me. Right. The situation in Gaza is, is, is terrible. It's a human crisis that is going on. Uh, it's a collective punishment for 2.1 million, and that's just awful. My heart goes for both communities, but I, I think then the right thing to do right now is that we have to call to stop the war. Enough is right. enough with the civilians being killed. You've uh, you spent time there, I know. There's pictures of you when you were young, I've seen, uh, in yeah. Gaza. You spent time as a medical volunteer there. I think it's yeah. hard for, for anyone. I mean, you're in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal. I think it's hard for anyone to imagine yeah. what it's like to try and move one million people in Gaza. But yeah. just how impossible is that? Ben, I, it's, it's, a very, it's very difficult. First of all, I just want you to know that for me to get into Gaza through the Egyptian borders, I spent 13 hours I had to pay a lot of American U.S. to get into the Palestine-Egyptian borders. There was also mistreatment, even that I hold a Canadian passport. I want to outline it, that I was not very well taken care, right? And uh, the borders is, is a dehumanization. It, it, it was a nightmare for me. It was a trauma. 
And now that the war is happening, I can't imagine it how the Palestinians in Gaza, they're going through it. And even those Palestinian Canadians they go, that are going to try to get outside of the borders from Egypt. Um, I, I don't know what really to tell you. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. mentally exhausted, emotionally exhausted. There is around 2,000 people who are killed. 60% are kids. I mean, I'm just questioning myself that we live in this world today and how can we accept violence to go toward? I'm not taking side with anyone. You know, I'm Palestinian yeah. Canadian. There is also Israeli Canadians. There is a lot of people who immigrated from Ukraine, from Middle East. We all came here to Canada because we don't want to live in war. And therefore, it is our job as Canadians as well to advocate to stop for war because, you know, we have electricity, we have water. It is so easy, you know, to feel like you want to cheer, you want to take another side. But it's not fair for the people who are over there. It is not yeah. fair for the people over there to be killed and to be, you know, dehumanized and not to have what we are able to have here, like water and electricity. What have you made of, of there's been so much, uh, I don't know how much time you spend online, I hope not, not too much, but uh, other than to try and communicate with family, but what have you made of, of, of the debate? I, I hate to call it the debate this week, yes. but just the fact that so many people seem to be talking right past each other uh, on this one this right. week. It must be hard for someone, as you mentioned, it's easy when you're, when you're sitting in your living room somewhere comfy in Canada to say all kinds of stuff about what's happening a world away yes. to civilians of all yes. on both sides of this. There's civilians from both sides. As I told you, you know, I, I, I really want, you know, the people to think more in the humanity. You know, social justice does not depend on your ethnicity, your religion, your color. Social justice is a right for every single human, regardless of their ethnicity, their religion, right? And it is not fair that we are sitting here on our couch and, you know, we have the luxury to have electricity, to have food, while there are people over there being terrified, being killed, and not having the luxury of even having the clean water to drink. At the end of the day, you know, Ben, I'm a Palestinian Canadian. I'm so grateful that I I live here, I live in peace, but I also do want to recognize that we should not keep silent about the injustice that is happening over there, back there in home. And as well to recognize, you know, I don't know how to tell you, but this is the first time me, what is happening in Palestine made me also think about the First Nation, about uh, the, the indigenous people in Canada. Right. And I want to tell them that I'm also very sorry <laughs> for everything. And I also really wish that we as the humans will learn a lesson, that we should not be keeping silent about the injustice. And I wish that all Canadians... All Canadians, including Palestinian Canadians, Israeli Canadians, everyone, regardless of their religion, Muslims, Jews, Christians, we have to stop the war. It is not fair for kids to be orphans. It is not fair for kids to be killed. It is not fair for people to suffer. It is not yeah. fair. When you, um, I've asked this of, 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 of Israelis who I've had uh, on the show this week. When you saw what happened on Saturday, and I think people understood that what the response might be like, were you scared? Were you angry about what happened? Because we knew that this, uh, you know, I've, you know, we knew that this might be the response, right? We knew this was might mm-hmm. be the response, and I felt just watching it was so horrifying. And then I'm thinking, you know, what's going to happen next is that civilians in Gaza. That's what's going to happen next. You're going to have civilians on in, on the Israeli side, and now it's going to be civilians then, on the Gazan side. Yes, you know? as as I told you, you know. Like, 
we're against war and we're against violence. At the end of the day, I'm a humanitarian person. I'm a, a mm-hmm. person who works with children on the spectrum or autism. You know, I worked with children that this is my job. You know, I cannot imagine, I cannot bear to see a child suffering in front of me, whatever his religion, his race is. But, you know, I also want to remind you that Gaza is a cage. It's the biggest prison on earth. Unfortunately, yes. no one has talked about lifting the open air cage prison. You know, and even uh, a very famous Israeli journalist that I respect a lot, his name is Gidon Levi. He said, you know, it has been 17 years that the people in Gaza are living in the open air prison. What do you expect them when they're going to have the chance or the opportunity to resist? They're going to resist. However, you know, you cannot punish, you cannot do a collectivistic punishment to punish 2.1 million Palestinian in Gaza. We are good people. No. We are nice people. You know, we should find a way to live with each other. There should be negotiations of peace. This is what I think has to happen and make sure that both sides are going to respect them and as well make sure the the state of Israel as well. You know, since Benjamin Netanyahu came, mm-hmm. none of the, the accords has been respected, unfortunately. Right. You know, I, it's, yes, I, mean, I, 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 I follow this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 the complexities you know, of it are, are, are very <laughs> difficult. I understand. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I know not at all. I, I, this is your chance. Uh, obviously, you know this better than I do. I, I, I just wish. I hope your family are, are okay, um, and and clearly, we're waiting to see whether or not some can get out tomorrow. And I suppose hope all against right. hope that this that this that this ends without uh, without more death. Uh, uh, yeah, Dahlia, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Across Canada, of course, as we well know, communities are desperately searching for ways to create and maintain affordable housing, and the lack of government action at many levels has prompted community groups to take matters into their own hands. That's the focus of a report this weekend on Global News' current affairs show, The New Reality. It's all about something called community land trusts. It's not a new idea, but they are growing in popularity right across the country. For example, when the Parkdale Neighbourhood Land Trust bought a first 15-unit rooming house in the West End of Toronto in 2019, it was one of the very first community trusts operating in Canada. Now there are more than a dozen in Ontario alone and 40 right across the country. So what are they? How do they work? And what are the benefits? Uh, Krista Hesse is a digital broadcast journalist with Global News. She's the reporter on this story and she joins me now. Krista, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about the inspiration for this because I know one of the things as, as you know, as having a show like this, we're always looking for ways of trying to tell that housing story or that housing shortage story again and try to make it impactful and, and bring up new ideas. This one is a really interesting concept. Yeah, actually, it's it's a bit personal. So I live in Toronto currently, and I used to, for many years, uh, live in one of the neighborhoods that I covered in the story, uh, Parkdale, which right. is a West End neighborhood in Toronto. Um, working class, um, long been an immigrant landing spot, um, and they've been dealing with gentrification, rising rents um, for some time. And I, you know, recently learned that they had formed a community land trust. And I was like, what is that? Didn't even know what it was. Um, so I had questions, uh, called up the uh, leader of, of of that group, Joshua Barnt, and uh, he kind of told me all about it. And I just thought it was fascinating and, and had no idea that it existed and that I've been going on for years and that we were in kind of a resurgence of community land trusts right now. 
Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I actually grew up in a co-op. So in that time, my parents and two other people that they knew bought each bought one floor of a triplex that used to be owned all by one person. They each bought one floor of it, and that allowed them to be able to afford to live there together, and they managed things and so on. These are a little bit different because this isn't individuals owning. This isn't broken up so individuals can own little pieces of something. This is the community owning something. Yeah, that's right. So essentially how it works is a community residents kind of get together, they form a nonprofit organization, and then that nonprofit would go out and purchase land from the private market. But that land is essentially community owned. And how that works is basically if you live or work in the neighborhood where the community land trust is based, you can be a member and then you vote on you know decision making uh within the community land trust and so essentially the land is held in trust for the benefit of an entire community and that means it's not necessarily just housing right we always think of housing but it can be anything in a community right anything that the community wants to keep and protect that's right yeah and in parkdale they own a community garden for example um in kensington market also in toronto um you know known for its vintage shops and and fresh fruit markets the focus there was both on residential units but also on commercial businesses making sure that some of the legacy commercial businesses that kind of make the market what it is can stay as rents have risen there when you look at the the impact of them, and I know there are, I think that you've mentioned there are about 40 across the country right now, and they're becoming more popular. Uh, clearly, part of the issue here is is, is a recognition that it, it sort of incentivizing private developers to build affordable housing isn't the, isn't the entire answer to the question. Clearly, it's not the entire answer, or we wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah, that's right. And, and Joshua Barnt, who I mentioned earlier, uh, brought this up when we were speaking. Essentially, when the government incentivizes developers to make a portion of their units affordable. Typically, that comes with a time period, right? So 10 years, 15 years, and then that unit goes back to whatever the market rate is at the time. And so the argument for why community land trusts are actually maybe better uh, vehicles to create affordable housing is that they're they're affordable in the long run. Um, you know, the, he says, Josh says, you know, it permanently, these, these are taken out of the market, they're now community owned forever. Uh, and so they can basically ensure that when a unit becomes available and say, you know, a mid-rise apartment building that they own, they can make sure that another low-income earner gets into that apartment building. That apartment will never go back onto the private market. And so in that sense, in the long term, that's seen as a better option. If you've ever been on a strata board or lived in or been part of a co-op, you know that these things are can get a little messy. Did you look into that at, at all as well? There must be, I mean, when I know there's a part of it that you said in Kensington Market, which is great. Anyone who's been to Toronto is probably familiar with the neighborhood uh, where, I mean, community land trust is also competing against developers with deep pockets. There are issues about what they can and cannot invest in. I mean, it's not as it's not um, it's not a simple take. It's not a simple thing to make happen. That's right. I mean, of course, the biggest hurdle is buying the properties, right? Real estate right now, no matter where you look in this country, is expensive. Um, and they'll tell you that too. That is probably one of their biggest struggles. Um, they essentially leverage government grants, bank loans, community donations, um, investment funds uh, to try to build these portfolios up. Um, but that happened slowly over time. And they did admit that there are a lot of houses and buildings that land trusts would like to buy, but simply don't have the capital to do so. Uh, in some cases, they're they're hoping that municipalities will donate land because they don't have the upfront capital to, to buy that land. Um, 
So of course, you know, if there was a ton of money going around uh, and more government support, frankly, for these for these land trusts, then we'd see we'd see more of them, and we and we'd see larger housing portfolios. Um, but hopefully, that government support comes. That that's that's what they would like to see. Um, right now, Toronto has a, a program that supports a lot of the land trusts here, but on a national level, uh, that program doesn't exist yet. Um, so that that. Hopefully, we'll be coming down the pipeline uh, if the CMHC um, kind of prioritizes it, I suppose. Starts to recognize their value as well as they continue. Because you mentioned, I mean, a lot of these are, have been created just in the last decade alone, that it's not a new idea, but it's certainly a growingly, increasingly popular one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the growth has been quite immense. Every time I go back and check the the, the network for Canadian uh, land trusts across Canada, there's always new additions. Um, like it's that popular. Um, people get called or the network gets called basically every week from different communities across the country, basically saying, you know, how can we do this too? And it's not just big cities. It's, it's small towns. It's mid-sized cities. It's, you know, the Aurelias. Uh, I spoke to someone in Muskoka that started one there. Um, so it's not just Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. This is happening across the country and in cities and towns of every size. And I think that speaks to just how acute uh, the housing crisis is in this country. Yeah, we could use we could use some some encourage some light at the end of the tunnel. I think on the housing front, uh, Krista. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> This is a story that has been oft told, but perhaps hasn't been told recently enough. It is one of the, of course, one of the great Canadian stories. It's about the railway and how it was built. In fact, there was no greater civic infrastructure project in this country's history and its scope, scale, and impact. And really, part of it was the promise made to BC as a key to joining Confederation. A national railway would end up being the thread across this vast country that bound us from east to west. It was completed in November of 1885 with the driving of the last spike at Eagles Pass in BC. The first passenger train, not long after, uh, would uh, uh, go would travel from Montreal and arrive in Port Moody in July of 1886. Uh, we must know the names, you know, Johnny McDonald, the Pacific Scandal, uh, Sanford Fleming, W.C. Van Horn. I used to live near Van Horn, so I, I knew what that was about. And in more recent times, we finally included the history of all those who helped build it, uh, including the many Chinese laborers who lived and died, uh, some 600 of the estimated 15,000, and those who were displaced by it, and the scars and legacies that it left behind at the time. Again, without the Canadian Pacific Railway, there probably wouldn't be the country that we now know as Canada. But also, as time has gone on, it's uh, allowed us to kind of look back with a different lens to figure out some of the issues that we still face as a country today. And that's what Stephen Bowen has done. He's uh, written a new book called Dominion, The Railway and the Rise of Canada. And it really is a look, uh, you know, it's probably been about 50 years since we've had a last, the last definitive look at this project. And here we are again, 2023, with a more modern take on it. And Stephen Bowen joins me now. Stephen, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. My pleasure. Again, this is one of those histories, I think, that Canadians are pretty familiar with, the idea of the railway and how it tied the country together, no pun intended. But what made you decide that it was time to revisit it? Because you're right, a lot of time has passed since this story, this vast story was last told. Yeah, I mean, over half a century, and that was the last major retelling of this story. But when you think of the CPR, it's up there along with you know the Hudson's Bay Company, which was the topic of my previous book. Um, it's up there in one of the great iconic stories of Canadian history, the, the great 
romantic stories that involve the binding of the nation and the creation of our national identity. And, and you know, all of that is true. I think it's, um, it's the single most important piece of civic infrastructure in Canada's history that enabled us to exist independent from the United States. It's not really too far of a claim to say that without the CPR, there would be no country of Canada. Um, so, you know, it's an obvious topic that needs to be updated because over the last half a century, uh, attitudes in society have changed, new research material has emerged, and just a, uh, there's a general interest in a more nuanced perspective on that whole foundational period of time when, when everything was coming together in our country. Yeah, I, I think even for those, I mean, I, I think we're, we're roughly the same age. I was born in 1970. Even in my case, I think all that I've really learned, what I've really learned in the last 25 years about this story is the stories that weren't told before, the stories of the laborers, the stories of the displacements, the stories basically of, of some of those who paid the price to build it, um, the sacrifices, really, uh, and, and the law, the unintended consequences. I, I guess in looking through your book, you, you've managed to try to wrap both the story that we are familiar with, with the histories that we may not know as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just like I did in my previous book, the exact same approach. I just want to cast the net wider, include a broader range of perspectives, like, uh, you know, change the story from being so narrowly focused on the managers and the executives or the chief engineers or the chief politicians to, to include other people who maybe worked on the railway in smaller capacity or people whose lives were affected by the railway or the concept of the railway or the coming of the railway, but who weren't even directly employed by the railway. You know, I just want to look at how the world was being changed by this monumental industrial, you know, piece of civic infrastructure, which at the time was the longest railway ever built in the world and the most technically sophisticated too. And of course it nearly bankrupted the nation. So a lot of the, there's a lot of voices, a lot of different perspectives on it that are, well, tangential to the exact main story, which isn't to, to, to I don't want to detract from the main story. It was a triumph of engineering, a triumph of political, um, a political will, a triumph of creative finance and engineering. But there's also, you know, a darker side to the whole story too. And I wanted to make sure that I included that so that, just so that as a society, we all have a greater um, perhaps a, a more nuanced and greater understanding of the issues and how this turbulent period of time at the very foundation of the nation has affected some of the issues that uh, we're still wrestling with today. Yeah, Stephen, I mean, it makes perfect sense if you were, if if we focus on the building of the railway as being sort of the, the tie that binds the country, the tie that, or at least you know the foundation that built the country to some extent. One would think that that its history continues, that the impacts of it continue to this day. What are some of the when you mention trying to tell those stories that maybe hadn't been told before? And I know there's a few different anecdotal ones that you've put in there about different people who who had different roles, as you said, and they weren't managers and they weren't politicians and you know they weren't big money people in Montreal. What are some of the ones that you really uh, that really fascinated you? Well, I mean, yeah, there's a there's a whole series of little people, and I just sort of inter interject them into the story every now and then. Um, one of the key ones would be uh, perspective. Let's just take Jerry Jerry Potts, or mm -hmm. um, you know, an enigmatic uh, Blackfoot Métis war leader chief uh, who also became the chief guide of the Northwest Mounted Police, and they wouldn't even have survived 
as an institution, if it wasn't for him, they, you know, to their great fortune, uh, were directed to hire him when one of their officers was in Fort Benton in, Man in Montana. And they said, Jerry Potts is here. You got to talk to him. Um, and they did. And because he had a foot in both worlds, he was a respected uh uh, in the warrior societies and a respected chief in the various uh, Blackfoot communities. He spoke eight different languages and um, and different dialects, and he became the chief guide of the Northwest Mounted Police and was able to uh, pave the way for them to have a stable existence and enabled their success. Um, he would not normally have found his way into a book that's narrowly focused on the railway and yet his contribution you know, laid the path for the peaceful completion of the a relatively peaceful completion of the railway, and um, his rec his contribution should be recognized. And another one would be uh, Mifflin Wistar Gibbs, a mm. black pioneer from California, an educated man, a lawyer, and a businessman who brought five to six hundred different uh, you know black settlers up from California when they didn't like the laws that were being passed there that were discriminated against and moved them into the vicinity of Victoria. And he became a prominent member of the Confederation League, arguing for British Columbia to join with the rest of Canada. Well, we don't know too much about him, but um, the promise of the railway, along with the uh, opinions of a bunch of these senior members of the community in Victoria at the time is what persuaded British Columbia to join with Canada. Very, inter very interesting uh, a story. Of course, you know, people like him are not the, the marquee name, but that everyone would talk about. Nevertheless, they deserve to be recognized. Or Duke Sang Wong is another one. Um, his diary had only been recently discovered. Previous to that, there was, there was just... You know, the thousands of Chinese migrant laborers who were brought in to build the CPR in its most difficult stretches along the canyons of the Fraser River in British Columbia, he was basically has emerged as the only recorded voice of all these thousands of people. Prior to that, there was there was no uh, direct insight into how those people lived or what they thought about the world. Um, he's a very interesting character. He arrived from from China. Most of the people who arrived were peasants, and yet he was an educated person with a very unusual family background. He first went to the U.S. and worked his way up into Canada and then spent the next decades working on the railway and other um, industrial projects related to that before he brought his wife over and settled down. And his comments and his stories about what happened to him and what was happening to other Chinese migrant laborers opened an entirely new window that was unknown before, and it's extremely fascinating. Stephen Bound is with us this half hour. His book is called Dominion, the Railway and the Rise of Canada. Uh, you, you interweave a lot of characters that have come under new scrutiny um, in the book as well. For instance, John A. MacDonald, who, who was sort of a driving force behind getting this railway built. At the same time, his legacy has been has come under a real uh, a real spotlight in the past while. And you tackle that. You try to tackle both the good and the bad. And I think that's an interesting part about taking that incredible project that was the CPR and then revisiting some of the people who may have been um, talked about it in a different way a half century ago when the story was last told. Yeah, I mean, in that previous era, when stories like this were being written about in the 1970s, um, they were all written from the point of view of cheering on this great national, you know, it's all about nationalism and how great it was. And, and they didn't want to look at any of the downsides to anything that was happening at that time. It was exclusively looking at the positive aspects of 
you know, the CPR, for example, and cheering it on is a great national accomplishment. And all of that is true. And, you know, when it comes to a controversial figure like like Johnny McDonald, um, it has to be acknowledged. Canada is his idea. He put those colonies in the East together, the Atlantic connected it to Ontario and Quebec, or, you know, upper lower Canada. And he created that Eastern part of the country. He had a great and abiding dislike of Americans. He was an, he was anti-American. And his overriding life's ambition was to prevent those dastardly Americans from expanding their empire and conquering all of Western North America. And without a doubt, everything west of Lake Superior um, would 100% have become part of the United States if it was not for John A. McDonald's monstrously inflated ego. Um, the problem with him was that his ego... He never allowed anything to get in the way of achieving his objective. And so while he pushed the country into existence, he overlooked a lot of the um, damage that he caused to certain groups of people, specifically indigenous peoples, um, in order to achieve this objective. And that's where the controversy has come that is associated with him. Now, I think... It's also important to keep in mind that some of the things that are appended to John A. Macdonald were actually more associated with uh, Wilfrid Laurier, which came later. I mean, Macdonald mm -hmm. did die in 1891, and most of the in indigenous residential schools were constructed after that time under Wilfrid Laurier's government. But he did begin it. He was quite brutal in suppressing indigenous uprisings, particularly on the prairies. Um you know, sending the army out there to put down the, he wasn't going to allow anything to get in the way of the creation of Canada and, or the creation of the railroad, which is intimately linked to the creation of Canada. And um, you have to look at both sides of his character. I mean, uh, I, I'm not going to say he's an angel. I'm not going to say he's a devil, but mm -hmm. he did create our country. And it's important that we look back at those histories with that lens, too, because, again, it is part of the foundation of what this country is, but also, you know, the scars that it left behind are still there, too. And I think we're becoming more cognizant of that. I, reading your book, one thing that struck me, and this is often talked about, is that we can't build pro mega projects like that anymore. And, and you know, if you were to read books written in the past, you might think, well, why not? All you have to do is pull together and do this. And in reading your book, you realize, of course, the nuances and the scars and, and, and just the amount of consensus you need or how much you have to steamroll over those who object makes these very difficult to build and was difficult to build then too, uh, but was just done with a lot less um, respect for people who opposed the project. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's, um, I don't think it would be possible to, to build a thing like the CPR now for environmental and social reasons. Um, but it's true that it was not easy to build at the time either. I mean, it was a technical challenge uh, beyond comparison. I mean, and it's also important to note that, you know, thousands of people actually died in mm -hmm. the construction of that railroad. Many people, um, the workers and the crews associated with even the surveyings before construction even began, um, lived what no one could possibly live like that today. And any employer that tried to hire any people like that would be sued out of existence or shut down for illegal labor practices. Um, or 
you know, I, I keep thinking back to, the, you know, the fact that over 600 Chinese laborers died on that one section of the Fraser River Canyon in, right. you know, dynamite explosions and rock falls and clearing tunnels out. I mean, no, in some cases, there's story of them being lowered on a rope over the cliff where they dangled down the cliff with dynamite in their hands. They stuffed the dynamite into the rocks, light it on fire and yank on the rope for people to pull them up before it blows them <laughs> to bits. I mean, it's... uh. The, the type of things that went on are absolutely crazy, you know, and the food that was provided to some of the workers was was very poor. And um, in in many cases, all opposition to the railway, if anyone objected to it going through their territory, I mean, no, there was no opposition. The railway was going where it was going to go. It was considered to be such an overriding importance to prevent Americans from being there that that uh, it just got pushed right through the territories of indigenous people who had in the process, the signing of a lot of those treaties from Ontario West um, to, to clear the land. And, and Stephen, it's, it's just great to have the history, such an important part of Canadian history revisited in a way that, that, uh, that will make more sense to a modern reader. And thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure to be here.